What good things could come? How could these individualized, siloed, atomized fields, how could they enhance their own practice by realizing that they have a lot to learn from or to be in dialogue with similar missions that are bubbling up in different fields? From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with media theorist and design anthropologist Shannon Mattern. Shannon joins us today to discuss her book, A City is Not a Computer. Shannon, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. Thank you for doing this. It's lovely to see you again. Um, over the past decade, during which I've been uh, happy to follow your uh, your work in in print and in various formats, you've been remarkably prolific as an author, um, uh, particularly bringing you know a kind of unique set of you know uh, methodologies and points of view to a range of urban sites uh, and subjects. Um, over the time that I've been following your work, I know you've thought deeply about an astonishing array of different subjects from hardware stores to libraries, um, urban plumbing to the design of uh, soundscapes and alarms. Um, how do you go about identifying the topics or themes that you push through into publications, public presentations or coursework? Uh, there are a myriad sources of inspiration, one of which is the city itself um, uh, and the fact that I spend well, it used to be about one Saturday a month. I would uh, um, make a list on my phone of 30 or so galleries that I wanted to go to. I subscribed to a whole bunch of listservs, look at things on Instagram and Twitter, and put together a geographically organized list of galleries I want to visit. Um, and I try to find an efficient route to the city to see as much as I can. So honestly, a lot of my research topics come from being inspired by artwork which then raises critical questions. And then I'm curious to see if anybody's written about certain things. So I do a preliminary search. Sometimes I've asked on Twitter, you know, it's really sad to see the demise or the downfall of Twitter because that's been such a generative space for me for the past decade plus, especially just to crowdsource, to see if I'm, as a particular new research topic for myself or my students, I'll ask to see if maybe there's a, a kind of a, a synonymous term that's being used in another field that I don't know to search for, just to see what people are, across disciplines are saying about something. So this is a bit tangential, but I guess it is to say that like there is a rather tangential, um, entangled way that I go about identifying research topics. It could be encountering things in the material city itself, the various events and organizations in the city that I've been involved with, meeting people through those forums, um, encountering things on social media, uh, finding out, finding things in galleries, and also my students, just their interests um, and the questions they pose in my attempting to help them with their research will sometimes lead me across tangents that uh, raise questions that I then want to address myself. Are you one of those thought leaders that's made their way over to Mastodon? I hear that's the new frontier. I guess it is. I mean, there have been people who've been there for quite a while, but um, I think it was when the sale to Elon Musk was made official. I was among the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who finally set up a Mastodon account. Um, it's, it works slightly differently. Uh, I have only in recent weeks started to use it a bit more robustly. Um, the pace is not quite as fast and you don't get the immediate gratification you do with Twitter, but it's a friendlier space, as you might have heard. Um, which has both pros and cons. Uh, the long answer to your and to your question, yes, I am there, but I'm still trying to find out uh, uh, living in a liminal space in between Twitter and Mastodon these days. 
Well, in spite of uh, what you describe as, you know, things being, you know, tangential or, or happenstance occurring to you, there does seem to be a quite clear methodology. Uh, by the city, you're, you're referring to New York City, I assume. You're now at the University of Pennsylvania, so you're spending time in Philadelphia. Um, does, you know, does New York hold a particular locus in your work, therefore? Because I, I don't necessarily associate your work as being specific to one city. Uh, it's not. Um, I have tried to expand my purview because I recognize that there are legitimate critiques in the myriad fields with which I work that um, uh, so much of the scholarship is very global city specific or centric, New York centric, which I think gets a little bit exhausting to people who are live in non-coastal elite cities. Um, but I think that there are certain uh, urban experiences that are generalizable that I am have been lucky to experience in my 25 years in New York that then prompt questions that I think uh, ra that raise questions that are germane to myriad cities. Um, so it's not necessarily New York specific, but that just happens to be my locus and my source of inspiration for two and a half decades. So in this um, monthly uh, self-curated uh, kind of tour of uh, art galleries and museums, um, th would this account in some ways for how it is you seem to be, at least and many of my colleagues, to be just ahead of the curve on topics that seem inevitable a year after year in print on them? Well, I never thought about myself that way, so it's very kind of you to say that. Um, but yeah, I do think some artists, especially the creative technologists that I follow and I've been fortunate to um, partner with on certain projects and befriend over the years, I think they tend to be very prescient. So I think it's just through my my friendships that I maybe hear about things through, that artists are on the pulse of or on the cutting edge of recognizing it then trickles into scholarship. And of course, you know, the, the, the slowness of traditional academic publishing means that those topics don't get addressed in print for two or three, sometimes five years from then, which is why I have tended to move towards um, digital, uh, slightly more immediate forms of publication. But yeah, to, again, long answer to your, your question. Yeah, I do think it is the the friendships I'm fortunate to have that helped me to to, um, to learn through those connections about um, issues that are that are bubbling up. Uh, your most recent book, uh, A City is Not a Computer, um, uh, published ostensibly end of 2021, but I think we most of us received it last year in 2022, uh, and it is, I think, being you know read widely. Um, you begin with this um, opening, which is really um, kind of taking uh, Christopher Alexander to task on his uh, kind of 65 formulation that a city is not a tree or, or, or a city ought not be a tree, I guess, is the, is the kind of the kind of ethical implication of that. Um, uh, you cite Alexander's, you know, paper from 65 as contrasting uh, two abstract uh, urban structures. Uh, on the one hand, the semi-lattice, as he coined it, as he described it, um, uh, and that of the tree. Uh, and that the organic, you know, semi-lattice is somehow a complex fabric that has history. It's been developed in various cultures over many, many years. It's thick and tough and subtle. And then the tree city, by contrast, is characterized by its relative simplicity. <laughs> and you took Alexander to task for this in a way that I found really quite productive. Um, you know, he, you know, you refer to Costa's plan for Brasilia. I think of, you know, my friend Albert Pope's reference to ladders in Hilbersheimer's work. But in either case. You counter Alexander and his, you know, kind of dim view of tree-like structures with what you coin as arboreal intelligence. So, first of all, is that is that your formulation? Uh, should we be thinking about it in relation to somebody else's work as well? Um, and what what exactly do we think we're getting at by arboreal intelligence? 
Okay, so I don't know that I really thought of myself as taking him to task. I think that I was trying to, um, I had written published an article maybe five or six years ago called A City Is Not a Computer, which was in part maybe a slightly rambunctious response to a prompt that I was given. I was supposed to write a chapter about how a city is an information processing machine, which other folks have argued as well. And in trying to do this kind of uh, accessible, provide um, uh, and generative literature review on thinking along those lines. I realized that there was there were such limitations, there was such impoverishment to that thinking. So I wanted to realize that yes, there are certain computational aspects of a city, but it's also much more than that. So a city is is like a computer, but it's also so many other things as well. And then after I published this piece that was I was glad to see pretty widely read and and, and generally well received. Somebody reminded me of Christopher Alexander's essay, which I then revisited as I uh, revisited the essay for the purposes of this book. So I don't necessarily think I was trying to take him to task. I was trying to learn, think about how he was using these terms, which seemed a bit paradoxical or contradictory to me because there's so much plant-like vegetal thinking, so much thinking with forests, thinking with plants these days, which tends to be used as a way of encouraging us to think across a more multi-species way of being, to think more rhizomatically, more organically, whereas contradictorily, um, uh, Alexander uses the tree as the more um, kind of fixed and limited understanding of urban of urban form. So it's just was kind of interesting to me that his use of the terminology had a certain pejorative connotations that are contrary to the way we use tree thinking today. Fair, fair enough. I, I mean, I, I, perhaps this is subconscious on my part. I, maybe I was hoping somebody would take him on on this front as, as somebody who's been, you know, I've been dining out for a decade myself on the kind of you know organicist metaphors for things. It is true that he take he takes the tree as a kind of literal formal thing and that devotes all of the organicist you know metaphor to the computational or the algorithmic. It's, it's odd, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Molly Wright Steenson might be the person who's better equipped to like take him to task than I am. She's read his oeuvre much more closely than I have. But in terms of what we can learn from arboreal thinking, I mean, this is actually one of the two book projects I'm ostensibly working on during this leave that I'm having right now, which has not been as productive as I would have liked. But um, just all the different ways that tree thinking has especially informed kind of media studies, mediation, the history of communication. But how I'm using it in this book in relation to cities is how we can think about both the tree as a form in with regard to urban form and morphology, how uh, tree thinking really shapes the tools and the intellectual and epistemological models that have informed urban planning and design practice. So even everything from, you know, like uh, dichotomous classification, uh, which has informed, you know, the way modernist modes of thinking, it's implanted in so many disciplinary ways of thinking, even just the separation between the disciplines, like what distinguishes an architect from a landscape architect, from an architectural engineer. I mean, uh, at the root, here I am using these arboreal metaphors of a lot of this are this classificatory systems that are rooted in kind of modernist colonial modernism. Um, but then also uh, I uh, am thinking about how trees are the substrate, the materiality, the, the source material, the resources of so many of the things we make both in the city and in mediation, you know, everything from papyrus to paper, to the stylus, to celluloid, a lot of this stuff is plant-based. Um, and then furthermore, you know, how um, we if we think more capaciously about trees, especially with this, what is not new to indigenous communities, but is relatively new to the kind of traditional scientific world of the wood wide web and mycorrhizal networks, et cetera, 
thinking um, about how we can break out of the fixed um, branching, kind of the 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 more regimented formalism that Alexander talks about to realize that trees actually embody multiple morphologies and um, and uh, are a lot more productively and beautifully entangled with other species and ways of being as well. I try to productively address this multiplicities of ways of thinking through trees in an essay that I published, I think it was in the fall of 2021. Um, uh, called tree thinking, looking at the various ways that trees inform all of these different intellectual and professional traditions I was talking about with you just a little bit ago. Um, yeah, so I think that we, if we recognize the multiplicity of trees and how central they are to our structures of thought, our modes of practice, that we can recognize kind of different ways of doing the things we do and different ways of thinking and possibly different connections between different fields that could productively work with one another. So that's what I think arboreal thinking could potentially have to offer us. Uh, again, it strikes me as quite timely. I mean, on the one hand, of course, there's the taxonomic and kind of the question of ordering, you know, the kind of deconstruction of that, which I know that, you know, you and I share an interest in and your interest in libraries or archives or, you know, taxonomic structures. Um, but we also have had, you know, conversations in this space uh, with um, a range of people thinking about growing building materials. You know, it, could, it couldn't be uh, more timely, whether it's uh, braided sweetgrass or fungi, as you say. Um um, the book, um, or much of it, reads uh, really as an extended critique of, you know, mistaking the city for an algorithm or or reducing the city is probably a better precise, more precise formulation, reducing it to an algorithm. Because I think much of your, 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 your plea is for us to just is not to mistake, you know, data for the city itself. Um, um, in that context, you know, chapter one focuses on the development and uh, kind of dissemination of the kind of Bloombergian dashboard of data, which seems to be a kind of necessary and and you know co commodified byproduct of smart cities or thinking about smart cities. Um, um, on the topic of smart cities, you write that after more than a decade of writing about similar themes in article form, I've pretty much had it with smartness. I'm annoyed by its elasticity, its ubiquity, its deceptiveness, and its sullying association with real estate development, techno-solutionism and neoliberalism. Uh, so I plan to use the term as infrequently as possible. Um, so how is it that you came to uh, have this as your kind of object of obsession, smart cities, and when did it really get under your skin? Uh, well, I started to write about technology and urbanism. Well, first of all, I started writing about libraries. That was the topic of my dissertation. I did I what I would not have at the time, but ultimately in retrospect realized it was like a light ethnography of the design of the Seattle Public Library, where they were really trying to find a balance between the appropriate balance between emerging digital technologies historical technologies, wondering what this civic building meant in a city that was putting itself on the global map in large part because of the ubiquity, the prevalence, the power of tech companies there. Um, and then realizing that these issues scale up and down. So where I focus at the scale, start at the scale of architecture, and then realize that there are these data logic that go move across scales. So if you're thinking about the designing a library building, for instance, you have to think about designing the catalog the classification system, the logistical systems that moves movement resources around. Then you can scale up to think about kind of these data logics that inform uh, urban systems at a much at kind of at the urban scale. Um, so I think uh, my interest in smartness or smart cities or data-driven urbanism, whatever you want to call it, technological urbanism, kind of started with um, 
emerged out of my interest at my work in the architectural scale that started maybe two and a half decades ago or so. Um, and then I started to write more frequently about these things when I became a columnist for Places Journal in 2012. Um, there, I've had a series of probably 15 or so long-form articles over the years about the dashboard, about um, precision um, precision medicine and its proposed uh, implications for urban planning, um, about the history of the smart city as represented in the World's Fair, about kind of prefigurations of the smart city through administrative aesthetics at the World's Fairs, particularly the 1934, 35, and 69, um, 70, or 60, I forget what it was, the 69 World's Fair, forget exactly what the first year was. Um, so just that variety of, uh, of uh, various historical, metaphorical, methodological, object-centered ways of thinking about smartness. And then after writing a series of these, I looked back in retrospect and I was like, oh, there's a theme here. There's a connection that could they could potentially be brought into a book, which is what I was actually invited to do by Princeton and its relationship with Places Journal to think about revisiting and, and, and stitching new connections between these existing works into a book about um, kind of these unifying themes of smartness, very capaciously defined. And then the source of my frustration, was that another part of your question? It seems to be the theme of the conversation. Maybe that's coming from my side more than yours. Uh, well, it's just, um, uh, I, I, again, I'm not the only person who's mentioned this. There are plenty of, now, plenty of critiques of smart cities. Um, Jathan Sadowski's book, my friend Arid Halpern just co-authored a book that came out, I think maybe just a month ago or so, called The Smartness Mandate. Lots of critiques of things like the smart home, of um, uh, uh, various smart medicine, etc. Um, so I'm definitely not the only person who raises these concerns. It's just the the uh, elasticity of the term, how it is used to, to as essentially a kind of contentless marketing term in many cases. Um, that we also one thing that I was really interested in doing is recognizing that smartness is actually an epistemological claim. Like if you what um, a, what does it mean to call something smart? Um, what what knowledge claims are based there? Is knowledge even a concern here? Is it more about a collection of data that are then automatically processed? Does it require even any human knowledge or wisdom at all to operate a smart system? So I was really interested in kind of looking at this impoverishment of the term by asking what can and can what can and can't it do as an epistemological claim? On that topic, um, you suggest, again, productively, I think, uh, that you can then pluralize uh, from the kind of methodological or these epistemological questions. Um, and you invoke, among other things, critical data studies, uh, critical algorithmic studies, critical race studies, disability studies, media studies, and these other ways of thinking. Um, and it strikes me that uh, as much as a critique of the smart city you know, movement, such as it's been, uh, I, I read the book and take much of your work really as a kind of plural of ways of thinking about it. You know, it's really an argument for not reducing the city to streams of, of uh, data, streams of ones uh, and zeros. Um, I, I was struck in, in, you know, coming back to the book, I, of course, followed your work in, in journal articles in, in places over the last decade. Uh, and as you say, much of this book came out of those. Um, I'm struck by your reference to that being a kind of retroactive self-awareness that you look back at these essays and saw that there was a book. How, how much work was there to saw them down, sand them off? Like how, how much craft was there involved in getting them from those separate essays into book? Because it, it very much does read like a book to me. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. 
Um, I originally conceived them as essays. I really do think the essay is my form. It's where I feel the most at home. It's the writing that is the most pleasurable to me. Um, I will be, I have mentioned this before, and I think it kind of makes my editor shudder a little bit, at least the book editors, but I said, I don't really love writing books. Um, uh, there's just, uh, just the, the time for it's, it's such an elongated time frame. Um, image rights clearance can, can be so torturous in some cases. So there's certain aspects of the book production that are not as pleasurable, I will say, as writing essays. Um, so they were the, the the original work was conceived for the essay form, in part because I'm also writing about very contemporary projects. And I realized that even though I hope there's an enduring argument there, they are addressing some, some timeless or enduring questions. There often is a case study or an anecdote that I'm working with is really rooted in the contemporary. And I realize that can date, can sometimes become dated relatively quickly. And I hope that doesn't then turn readers off if they're reading it three years down the line and they see this news or this potentially smart city project that has since been abandoned and think that now the, the entire piece is irrelevant. Um, I'm hoping that it, they have a longer shelf life than that. But that was one of the challenges in piecing it together into a book is finding where the enduring dimensions are maybe not necessarily taking out the projects, especially the dashboards chapter. I found that probably half of the projects that I referenced that were you know, major projects funded by city governments, um, international NGOs, for instance, no longer existed um, just fewer than five years after I wrote about them, which gets at, again, the danger of, of relying on kind of data-driven platforms uh, to produce or to manage um, systems in which people's livelihoods, on which people's livelihoods depend. Just the ephemerality of data, the difficulty of data, of digital preservation. Um, so the challenge is what's one of the challenges of, of working it together into a book is figuring out how to balance um, the contemporary with the enduring, how to maybe historicize and situate the failed projects of which there are many to say that, yes, this example I used five years ago doesn't exist anymore or it failed, but that does not mean that it is irrelevant. We can learn from that failure or this is the prevalence of ephemerality and the, the kind of pluralization of failures. That itself is an interesting lesson to be learned here. And then also wanting to find um, uh, narrative threads, rhetorical threads that connect things together. I added some new material as well. The introduction and conclusion are new. And I really found just in thinking more about our, going back to your question about our arboreal thinking, I was serendipitously prompted to write for an exhibition catalog about six or seven years ago about grafting. It was an exhibition about grafting, which is something I hadn't thought about. So I learned a lot about grafting and realized what a productive, not only process, uh, practice, art form, but method it is, metaphor and method. So I really looked at putting this book together as a form of intellectual and methodological grafting, uh, rhetorical grafting. And that actually became a central um, conceptual uh, dimension of the introduction and conclusion too. So grafting is something that applies to smart cities or uh, uh, um this pluralistic mode of thinking that you were talking about that I'm glad you read in the book. It's not a matter of solely critiquing in a destructive way, but in pl promoting pluralism. So I feel like grafting really gets at that um, prismatic way of thinking, but it was also a really productive way to think about how to make the material object, how to write the book too. Well, shout out to Michelle Comey and all the editors at Princeton University Press, not to mention our friends at uh, Places uh, Journal. Um, 
you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the 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 making of a book as a different kind of a project. I mean, I think one benefit among many of having this in book form has been that in both the introduction and conclusion, you do add and reflect quite a lot on the methodological and epistemological conditions. You know, there's a claim, there's a stronger claim made at the scale of the book about how this shapes disciplines or how this might inform ways of doing work by others on other subject matter. Um, so I'm glad that we have it. Um, uh, it struck me in in rereading the section on the kind of the 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 kind of terminal scape, you know, the urban console, um, that the, there is something of a kind of paradoxical, at least to me, distancing. I wonder if you would agree with this in in in, in your reading of it. That on the one hand, the presence, the simultaneous presence of all this information is meant to somehow inform decision making. But so often in the examples that I see or the examples that you cite, it seems to almost replace human decision making. You know, it's 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 as if the, the, the screen, you know, initially promises that having better real time information to make people's lives better, but then almost immediately folds into a kind of autonomous al algorithm. Is, is Am I overreading that? Uh, no, I think this is this is very parallel to the to the uh, discussion we're having about um, artificial intelligence. The newest, the topic du jour is ChatGPT. What does ChatGPT do? It frees our minds to think about more creative things. Same thing. I wrote a piece with um, one of my former students, Kevin Rogan, a couple of years ago about the the integration of artificial intelligence into design. I looked at fashion design, graphic design, and architecture. There, in all cases, the argument was that rather than being a fearful about the the kind of the um, the rise of artificial intelligence, we should think about what it frees us to do. It removes the burden of drudgery and then frees us to do the things that we humans with our magnificent brains are uniquely qualified to do. I think it's the same thing, a same hope here for some of these dashboards is that by get, do, doing the data gathering for us, by collapsing, or that sounds like a pejorative term, but by kind of integrating, synthesizing them all into one screen where we can get this ubiquitous um, omnis sense of omniscience or oversight of the phenomenon that we're supposed to be making judgments about, um, that it then frees us to, uh, yeah, it frees us of the drudgery of data collection uh, and instead provides all of the metrics that we need simultaneously so then we can do the magical things we do as humans and make smart judgments. Whereas it's all kind of it ignores the fact that so many decisions have been made as to how certain variables are operationalized um, and rendered into data streams or tickers or heat maps or dials on that dashboard. So the, it, it kind of obviates or brackets out so many of the really important questions we should be asking before making these decisions by already kind of automating and hiding the methodological choices that have been pre-made in order to package that those data streams for us. It's a classic example of it, it obscuring its own ideological construction. Of course, you know, the dashboard, the console, the er condition, it begins with, you know, markets, right? And the trading of the information and, and the trading of of, of markets. Um, um, in in that section, in the overall kind of argument relative to, you know, mistaking the city for a stream of data, um, I was reminded of the work of um, the political uh, scientist and economist Herbert Simon. You know, Simon was writing in the 60s on something that it, it was not exactly behavioral economics, but it was about the limitations of the classical economic theory. He wrote a book in 69 called The Sciences of the Artificial, in which he argued, among other things, um, you know, more data doesn't correlate to better decision making. And he had a whole series of other examples as to why that was. And so I guess if you if you buy that kind of kind of framework for thinking about the, the problem, 
how is it that we've come to believe that having more data will produce better decisions about, let's say, policy in the context of a complex city? Well, this is, again, some a, a belief that has a long historical um, tradition as well. I mean, there's a, a colleague of mine at NYU, Ben Kafka, wrote a book about the, I think it's called The Demon of Paperwork, looking at the assumption that by, it's like the rise of the administrative state, that by providing um, kind of documentation, collecting and storing, preserving um, a kind of a, a, a proliferation of of records that will then prepare uh, or, or um, facilitate more effective administration. Of course, the flip side of that is that it's also a very convenient way to um, create a semblance of transparency, but what you're ultimately doing is drowning people in a deluge of information or data or paperwork that then renders them, almost paralyzes them. So this is a technique that governments have used for hundreds I don't know if it's been thousands of years, but at least in his case, been Ben Kafka's case, perfectly named scholar for paperwork, Ben Kafka, writing about the French Revolution and the proliferation of paperwork. Here, it's a similar assumption is that by having, it's also the dream of the universal library, the complete data set. I mean, we have different uh, mediological terms to use, but this idea of kind of the universal library has a very deep history also. This assumption that whether it will make us better, uh, better, uh, uh, more qualified or capable administrators, governors, or just um, kind of informed human beings. This presumption that having a ubiquitous, a complete data set um, has a long, a long history. Um, thinking about the relationship between data and decision-making, which obviously you've spent a lot of time thinking very deeply about, I wonder if you've followed the... Um, the discourses around uh, first behavioral economics, uh, which is now established by many decades. And more recently, uh, the kind of behavioral policy flank of that way of thinking, that is that no matter how many screens we have or how effective our good governance might be, people watching those screens are still imperfect, you know, irrational, emotional human beings. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I have uh, delved or kind of um, dipped my toe into some of that research with regard to my my the work I've done on dashboards and this other project on on um, precision medicine and its implications for its potential kind of um, mode, ways of informing urban planning and vice versa. Um, and a, a lot of the dashboards are um, kind of a, a connected to um, what do you call a nudge, the nudge form of governments, uh, so that uh, you, if particularly when we're thinking about making dashboards that are publicly available, not only those that are facing the, the administrative class of a city to make decisions on behalf of the people, but if you then think about having civic dashboards or a publicly accessible dashboard, a lot of these are conceived as having the potential to suggest certain pro-social or personally beneficial behaviors. We see this also with self-tracking. So it's not as if, you know, uh, the self-tracking approach where we are collecting data about our own immediate environments and our own biophysics to inform decisions about ourselves. Some of these systems are actually linked into some of these more kind of urban scale modes of tracking and governance as well. Um, particularly in my project that I did about this, this um, initiative that was supposed to happen at NYU that then seemed to have been abandoned. And I think for very good reasons that I outline in the article, it was called the human project. It was about exhaustive data collection. I mean, it's just kind of astounding to see the amount of data they were proposing to collect about 10,000 people in the city that was then going to inform some of the work of urban planning, where a lot of this was how can we learn about the decisions people make, um, the personal histories, environmental factors that shape their biophysical health or their me mental and physical health. 
Um, and then how can we correlate those with certain qualities of the of the physical environment and then make decisions about designing environments that will then encourage more um, um, more beneficial behaviors and improve people's health. So there it was kind of a bi-directional thing that, that uh, personal health choices were going to scaled up, regarded an aggregate in mass, or then going to inform urban planning, and urban planning would in turn improve individuals and communities' um, mental and physical health. So there, that's very much based in some behavioral economics and kind of a nudge economy. One question that um, I'm really fascinated by, I'd like to understand more about your work, Shannon, is um, that so often in your work, you seem quite comfortable with... um, the contingent, you know, the ad hoc, the the, the found, the at hand, um, and it, it 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 in a way kind of recalls what you've said recently uh, in our conversation about the the desire on behalf of states or cities to have all the data. If we could have all of it, if we could have the entire library, the entire archive, and it strikes me that across the work uh, over the last decade that I've followed um, various sites and subject matter. Um, one thing that strikes me as often present is a sense of comfort with being contingent in terms of the case studies, like this hardware store, this library, this particular one. And, and so I, I want to ask you about how, how do you go about thinking about the particular, the incidental particulars? So we've talked a little bit about your methodology and, you know, monthly tours through the city and developing ideas with colleagues and with friends. Um, but in terms of the specifics of choosing, you know, a building or a particular example, how do you go about that? And and am, am I correct in reading it in that way? I think I do try to balance a little bit. I don't I, I of the generalizable and the particular. Um, I came up through media studies, my PhD is in media studies, but I had an architectural historian and an urban studies person on my committee, and I took I'd probably say an equal number of classes in those various disciplines. But I most recently, for the past four years, my last four years at the new school, I moved over to the Department of Anthropology to start a new program in anthropology of design technology. And I think being in that that field, even though I ultimately realized that I probably don't want to be an anthropologist and would not identify as one, just being immersed in that field in its uh, very particular um, relationship with methodology helped me to recognize the value of the particular and that what we might think of as the ad hoc or the contingent, um, there's a tremendous value to that way of thinking. There's no sense of obligation to produce generalizable knowledge. Like we could read across various ethnographers who are studying things like, let's say, informal infrastructures, for instance. They could all get together into a conference and look at the insights they generated from their very particular fieldwork and find um, kind of connecting themes or truths that emerge, kind of that are in 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 common across those sites. But just the lack of a sense of obligation to have to generalize the findings from a site who has been really, I would say maybe liberating for me, probably not for anthropologists because I'm baked into the discipline. Um, but uh, yeah, but that's that has been um, a very informative. And then also I think it's just uh, uh, drawing from qualitative methods and, I, and quantitative as well, like sampling. Uh, sampling sounds like something that's very kind of a, a clinical trial type of approach, but really sampling can also be a poetic approach too. If you want to identify, if you're interested in a theme and you want to think about um, what sites can I visit or what particular examples can I choose that really illuminate the critical concepts that are really exciting to me and that I want other people to think about as well, 
how do you choose a selection of case studies or examples that will each kind of complementarily identify or um, uh, uh, make salient those themes, those aesthetic qualities, those affective dimensions that you want to relay. So there, it's like a, it's a, yeah, it's like a poetic and a methodological process in time with each other. And there, through by by effectively sampling and poetically sampling, you can produce something that maybe produces a larger truth that isn't particular to a specific site. We've discussed, you know, that you know much of the book came from um, essays that you've uh, put in uh, Places uh, Journal as a contributing writer over the past decade. Um, one of those uh, essays about maintenance and care uh, was published on Places in 2018, and it forms Chapter Four of the book. And I, I want to ask you about that. Um, you say that um, maintenance has taken on new residence as both a theoretical framework and ethos and methodology, as well as a political cause. And I, I don't know if you have some sense of this, but in, in, in our disciplines, you know, in architectural landscape, architecture, urban design, urban planning, uh, this completely shattered what was going on in our field. I mean, in terms of student reading lists, bibliographies, uh, you know, I helped to curate the landscape thesis projects at, at, at the GSD. And overnight with the reception of this uh, essay on maintenance, um, you know, a third of the cohort wanted to work strictly on questions of maintenance and care. And so I found it powerful both in its reception, but also um, in its kind of timeliness in, in helping us to think a way about the city that changed the terms of the conversation. Um, when was it that you know, maintenance or care first occurred to you as a subject matter for that essay? Uh, well, again, this is something that maybe became, uh, was illuminated for me in retrospect. So I had been working on libraries. Often one of the things that I was inspired about looking at um, uh, information spaces was the backstage labor, often feminized labor by information professionals that is not validated. Um, it's also, I have a lot of friends who are librarians and archivists, and there's, as you probably know, in the humanities and social sciences and in the design fields too, archival theory is very sexy. A lot of people use the archive in very metaphorical ways, very rarely citing the the academic literature that, 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 that addresses everyday practice, professional practice, their own self-theorization within the field of archival studies. And this is something that has bothered, rightfully, my library and archivist friends for a long time. So one, I've always tried, not always, but especially since I became attuned to that, I guess I would call it an injustice. I've kind of wanted to make sure to represent the expertise and the self-historicization, the self-theorization in archival and library studies, which is a curatorial field, which is a field of maintaining and um, not main, not keeping static, but maintaining, preserving, conserving information of, of maintaining communities through the provision of information, through the provision of access. So it was in only in retrospect that I realized that a lot of the work I was doing in engaging with the labor, the expertise of information studies and information in, um, um, institutions was in part about maintenance. Um, and then also the piece that I wrote in, I think it was 2016 or 17 about hardware stores. I had a little footnote in there that hardware stores are kind of a microcosmic, going back to your earlier question about the site specific, they're kind of a microcosmic manifestation of the potential for local maintenance economies and the sharing of knowledge about maintenance. I put that in a footnote. And that's when Nancy, my editor at Places said like, this could be a whole article. Would you like to write a whole article about this? So um, 
And of course, I regarded the maintenance and care article not as a new con theoretical contribution of my own, but I regarded that as kind of like a literature review, saying that there is this bubbling up of discussions of maintenance, repair, care in myriad fields, from software development to civil engineering to um, uh, net art to architecture, to feminist, especially black feminist theory. They're using different terminologies, citing different literatures, but there could be something really productive that comes from looking across these fields and across scales. This also goes to maybe your question earlier about my comfort with the ad hoc and the contingent. I think part of that also comes from the fact that I have never really regarded myself as a theorist because there are so many um, capital T theorists in my field and other humanities that are so comfort comfortable with generalizing, um, with not citing the precursor work in their field, especially the practical work that is highly pertinent to the things they're theorizing about. I just knew I didn't want to be that kind of a, of a researcher or a writer. So that's maybe why I've just wanted to stick with the small because I've been somewhat allergic to capital T theorization. Um, and that's why, in part, I feel like a lot of the stuff I do is stitching together existing discourses, which is really what I thought I was doing in this maintenance and care article, just saying what could put what good things could come? How could these individualized, siloed, atomized fields, how could they enhance their own practice by realizing that they have a lot to learn from or to be in dialogue with similar kind of um, missions that are bubbling up in different fields? I have also been aware of the metaphoricization of archive. The archive seems to be everywhere and therefore nowhere. It, st it strikes me as empathy for the archivist is a really, it's a wonderful place to begin, uh, you know, a, a topic which ultimately is in our field has been received is really about the the public realm, right? It's about what what do we do with our crumbling infrastructure? How, how can we think about doing urban work without returning to the history of, you know, kind of top-down decision-making and erasure and, and all of that? Um, uh, in the piece on, on maintenance, um, you, you make a very persuasive argument for maintenance as, you know, valuable and important work equal to, or maybe even more timely than novelty, innovation, and invention. Um, in, in that regard, how, how are we doing since the 2018 publication? I mean, uh, are, are you hopeful? I mean, certainly in our fields, it's been widely read and absorbed, but I, I wonder if, if you see other instances since the publication of uh, the idea of maintenance replacing the new. I definitely see a lot more or, um, discursive things happening, a lot more conferences. I've, you know, uh, moderated a lot of panel discussions about these types of things, gone to a lot of studios, been a critic at a lot of studios about these things. So I'm really glad that it is kind of put on the agenda uh, for design students, for the future professionals, that a lot of professional organizations and cultural institutions that, that are shaping the practices of design are uh, putting this, this concept, this terminology at the center of what they're doing. So I'm glad it's put on people's radar in terms of how it's actually shaped practice. I mean, I think just the infrastructure funding that we've seen in the in the past several months, I mean, that is a great sign that at least a certain portion of political leaders recognize that maintaining infrastructure is a critical part to um, maintaining a society. 
Um, I still think we have a long way to go on things like, especially if you look at like Roe versus Wade and the fact that we're not still not maintaining infrastructures for child care for women's health. I mean, we've regressed in certain regret in certain respects as well. Um, but I, but particularly with the design uh, disciplines, I think that there I've seen a lot of discussion about like the long term lifespan of building materials, the reuse of waste on construction sites. You build using kind of um, uh, regenerative materials, using biomaterials and build and construction. So these are things that are not new, but I just see a, a um, an amplification of these discussions that in many in many cases they are connected to these concerns with maintenance and repair and care. Well, speaking of scope creep and the metaphorization of all things, how how have you read the? expansion of infrastructure to the provision of social services, you know, social safety nets, you know, daycare, uh, pharma- pharmaceuticals, like there's, it's, there's been a kind of explosion in the public imaginary after, you know, Biden and Build Back Better and the recent infrastructure bill that at some point, you know, everything became infrastructure. Um, is that, you know, interesting to you? I mean, obviously you've said something about it already, but I, I, I just want to draw out on that a little bit more. Like, is there a limit to that or are there ways in which that's been productive? Well, this is related to some of the work. Another one of the chapters in the book is about the library. And I wrote a, a piece in 2014 about the library as an infrastructure. And there I was looking at how if we recognize that a library is a technical infrastructure, an architectural infrastructure, a um, a building systems infrastructure, an epistemological and a social infrastructure all at the same time, and it is all of those things, that can be productive to realize that we design for them, we develop policies and funding to support them, that we're actually supporting all of these things simultaneously. But at the same time, when the library becomes so elastic or the term infrastructure becomes so elastic, there's potential danger there because you lose a bit of conceptual specificity. Um, we have seen many cases, the archive being one of those examples from before, I remember when I was in grad school, it was the archive of fill in the blank, also architectures of another one of those terms that has been metaphorized to the point where it kind of loses um, loses a lot of utility because it becomes so infinitely elastic. So I think there are great things in recognizing that infrastructures are not, not just about technical, mechanical things, about, trans, about the, the basic uh, material functions of transportation, energy, etc. that there is a social dimension to all of these things. So if you look at our energy provision, you know, if look at the people who are living in the oil fields in Canada, for instance, like they need, there's a social dimension to making the lives livable for the people who are performing these often very inhospitable and um, physically dangerous work, dangerous labor. So, um, uh, yeah, so recognize that there is a social flip side or underbelly or component to um, even the seemingly hard and cold and factual and technical. So that's a positive development. But there is a potential danger, as with so many of these other conceptual terms that have become infinitely elasticized, that they lose specificity. You wrote that before maintenance can challenge innovation as the dominant paradigm, we'll need to build a bigger public stage what kind of public platform or stage did you have in mind? Well, part of it is just having these different fields talk to each other, um, putting it on the agenda in Congress, in public discourse, in the press, um, especially the like the the one of the um, uh, large 
foils for the maintenance discourse was the innovation fetishization of Silicon Valley. And that the fact that these are the robber barons of our day, they are actually funding our public institutions, our public health, our uh, formation of more traditional infrastructures. This in innovation mentality is shaping, going way beyond the tech field and shaping the provision kind of policy and development of agendas in other infrastructural spaces as well. So just recognizing that we need to uh, disabuse ourselves of the notion that innovation is an inherent good and it is kind of the primary telos of all thinking, of all development, of all governance. I think that's the larger stage and it shapes policy across the board, should be shaping public discourse, the public press. Um, yeah. Shannon, one of the questions I've got for you here is, um, you've, you know, we've talked about your um... Uh, the kind of diversity of disciplinary and intellectual kind of origins of, of your own uh, your own formation, uh, the fields that you read into and the discourses that you draw upon, and, and I think I've got a much better sense from this conversation of your of your own identity as somebody who really is bringing discourses together and making discourses aware of each other. I think that's that's important work, obviously. Um, but there are, you know, there are limits. There are so many hours in the day, only so many days in the week. And, you know, and I are both, you know, not writing our books right now because we're having this conversation. Um, how do you know when to, you know, go on a diet and stop reading? How do you know when to limit what you're reading into? Uh, because as, as we know, the, you know, the library, the archive is, it's not infinite, but it's pretty big. Yeah, so that is a real challenge for me. I mean, I just recently, actually, it was just uh, two days ago, I published an article in Places on the, the Water Fountain, which is just a personal fascination, a piece of public furniture that I love, that I thought had some really interesting things. If we think about the, the metaphors, the, the role of this public good, how it could... Uh, um, Historically, how it could inform the way we think about other public goods like libraries, which are under attack in myriad ways today. So there I collected 100 single space pages of notes. I read way too much. And this is a, it's, it's hard to put the boundaries on sometimes, especially when you realize like, oh, now I have to know about water politics. Oh, now I have to read about water infrastructure in ancient Rome. Um, now I have to read about kind of plastics, the politics of plastics and environmental science. So you could keep spiraling out indefinitely. And I think I did a bit of that, not a bit, I did a lot of that. And it was a long process of just reading through a hundred single space pages of notes to try to distill them into like a 5,000 word article. So um, it's a torturous process, but once you get down to those 5,000 words, it's a, it's a series, it's a kind of a process of iterative whittling. And fortunately, I have really good editors with whom I have a, a strong working relationship for 10 years. So there's no, not really the sense of self-consciousness or vulnerability where I can really rely on my editors to say like, I know you put this in there because you you felt this is a darling that you didn't want to kill or because you wanted to show your readers like, yes, I know this. So, but they say, but you can put that in a footnote. So it helps to have that great dialogue. But so it is a struggle that I have is that part of it is it's pleasurable for me. I love reading. I love following tangents, falling down, what is over the word? Worm, worm holes. I forget what the word is. Rabbit holes. Rabbit holes. That's it. Yes. I'm just going to mix it up with species here. Um, but it's just the the process of repeat, um, iterative process of whittling, whittling away and fine and crystallizing through repeated readings. Um, Part, part of it also is deadlines. I mean, I feel like sometimes having realizing I have to write a talk that I have to give in Berlin next week, there's only so much I can read. And that might sound very artificial, but it's just a, a it's a really important psychological check that I put on myself saying that like you can still write something that is competent and coherent 
even if you only have a week to do as much reading as possible rather than a month. So even these external limitations, word counts, deadlines, knowing who your disciplinary audience is and realizing you don't have to cover all the bases. You can cover, if you want as a base you can't cover now, you can do it in a follow-up article or in a footnote saying like, I'd love to go here, but I can't. So you have all these bibliographic and temporal and um, kind of administrative uh, limitations that really helps to draw a boundary around things when they seem infinitely expandable. Finally, um, what have you read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? So I have been mostly in the mode of reading articles recently, not so many books. Um, I have a huge stack of books that have been piling up. I still keep buying books several a week that um, are just accumulating. And I keep thinking that's what my sabbatical is for, but I have been using it for other things apparently. And the pile keeps growing. That said, um, there is a book that I have been eagerly awaiting that was recently published, um, Mindy Sue's Cyber Feminism Index, um, that was just published by um, Inventory Press. So first of all, it's just a really beautiful object. I think Inventory Press's books are gorgeous. The, the graphic design, the physical object itself really is a beautiful manifestation of the argument and the content. But also I have known Mindy for a long time. Um, I met with her actually in New York when she was doing this, starting this project as her master's thesis. I don't remember if it was at Harvard or MIT. Do you, I don't remember where she started this project, but just seeing the collective process that produced this book, uh, the global anticipation for its publication. Yes, this is Mindy's book and her name is on it, but just recognizing the the collaborative process, the global nature, the accumulation, the fact that this publication is an archive. Yes, there's an argument in it, but she's actually recognizing the curation of an archive itself is a form of knowledge production, connecting these historical and contemporary people who are engaged in various cyber feminist process, projects, so yeah, just everything this book represents as a knowledge, a, a trans historical knowledge community, I think is what's really compelling. And the, and the material object that it produced is what's really compelling to me. Shannon Mattern, thanks so very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Future of the American City curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.